So if you'll notice with me last week, and you're going to have to stare diligently at your Bible, we dealt with the issue of where the gospel comes from. And there were three phrases there that help us understand who, where the gospel comes from. First of all, in verse 2, it comes to us by way of promise. And I told you last week that the Lord really gives us two words, or yeah, through the Apostle Paul, the Lord gives us two words to put emphasis on the promise because we said He uses promise beforehand. And all promises come beforehand, but He wants us to put the emphasis on what God has done for us through His Word. So He promised this gospel beforehand. He did it through His prophets, and He did it in His Holy Word. So we never have to question, where does this message of life come from? It comes from this book that's lying in your lap. It's an actual message that gives us life and life everlasting. So that book in your lap is well worth your time. Now, the second issue that we're going to take up this morning, we're going to deal with who the gospel is about. And if you'll notice with me in verse 3, he begins with who it's about. It is concerning his son. And so he is, Paul is going to build for us a phrase. Each statement that I read this morning in 3 and 4 is working toward his last four words. Look at the last four words of verse 4. What does it say? Say it with me. Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the Apostle Paul is going to build out this phrase for us as he walks through 3 and 4. And as he's building this phrase, he's defining the gospel. Now, I also want you to notice that the very beginning of verse 3, after concerning the Son, you have this phrase, who was born. You see that? Now look at verse 4. Very parallel statement, who was declared. And so you have two statements that talk about the two stages of Jesus Christ becoming Lord. He was born and He was declared. And all the other things that we're going to talk about concerning those two statements help build out those two statements. Because he was born, if you'll notice the last part of verse 3, he was born according to the flesh. You see that? And then look at verse 4. He was declared, almost the last part, according to the spirit of holiness. So you've got all these wonderful parallel statements that's carrying us through the two stages of Jesus Christ becoming Lord and King overall. Now, when I was thinking about that this morning, let me just kind of abandon my notes for just a second and say this. You know, we go through stages as well. We were born according to the flesh. And worse than that, we were born according to Adam. Right. But through the grace of God and the gospel, you and I are born again. And now we are born according to the spirit of God. Right. So we're enjoying stages as well. Right now we're in the body. But one day we will be in the stage where we are in the resurrected body. And it'll be an entirely different body. This body that we have right now is not fit for heaven. The body that you're going to receive at the resurrection of the dead is going to be a body fit for glory. It's going to be an eternal body. It's going to be a perfect body. So when we talk about the stages, we understand stages because you and I are going through stages in this relationship with God. But here we have the stages of Christ, right? So Romans is a book about the gospel. Yes, we've walked all the way through the book of Romans and we've said that. But Paul begins his explanation of the gospel by describing for us what God has done in the Son through the gospel. 
It starts with concerning the Son because the gospel is about the Son. Now, we rejoice over the gospel of God because we know it is good news to us. We know because of Romans 1.16 that this gospel is the power of God for salvation. Yes, we understand that this gospel is for us. But the first order of business for the gospel is for the Son. Because again, God has done something in the Son through the gospel. And what the Father has done to the Son is He has made Him Lord. Now when we talk about this big word that we've used on Wednesday night, we've talked about the word anthropological, which simply means man, the study of man. And you need to understand that this gospel is not anthropological. It's not about man. Okay? It's not philosophical like other religions are. This gospel is not sociological. It's not here to settle the race divide. It's not here to maintain or build social constructions or any sort of institution. This has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with math. The gospel is theological, which means first and foremost, this gospel is about our God. And until you get yourself out of the middle of everything, you will not understand the glory of God and be able to honor God with your life because you're not in the middle of this thing. God is in the middle of this thing and He has set His Son Lord over all and our lives are to glory and exalt the Son. So, it is first what God has done to the Son and the primary work of this gospel is the glory of the Father through the exalting of the Son. And therefore, when Paul writes these words, look how he begins, verse 3, concerning His Son. Now, I said this last week, and I want to go back there, because this continues to be on my mind. and can't get away from it. Everything God has done, He has done in relationship to the Son. Now, we fuss on parents, because we made this mistake and y'all will make this same mistake. You make your life too much about your children sometimes. You make it all about what they're doing, what they want to do, and you put them in the center. And of course, you know how that's going to end. You're going to have a bunch of spoiled little brats. That's okay. It happens to the best of us. But that did not happen, you understand, to the Son of God. The Father literally made everything about the Son of God because the Son can be trusted with those sort of things. And that's where I want to take you this morning because the Son is faithful the whole way and can be trusted with having made everything about Him. But I told you last week, there's two great things that God has done. What were they? Do you remember? What was the first thing God has done? Creation. Yes? And then the second thing God has done is the gospel, right? And I began to think about those and I made mention of some of these things and and making comparisons always helps us to understand better. But both creation and the gospel were both accomplished by his word, by God's word. God spoke and there was light. In the gospel, God speaks or God calls and there is life. There is light in the soul when God speaks. And both creation and the gospel are designed to bring glory to God. And if glory is not brought to God, there's only judgment that's left. If we can't glorify God for creation, 
And we can't glorify God for his gospel. The only thing left in the table for you is judgment. Whether you're a person, whether you're a tribe, whether you're a nation, or whether you're a country like we are now, when you refuse God's glory for creation or for his gospel, what's left is absolute judgment. When we get to Romans 1, this is really going to unfold for us. Because when we fail to bring God glory for creation, again, he brings judgment. Romans 1 lays out in this format, those who reject the truth about God as witnessed through creation is given over to depraved minds. They fall headlong into utter foolishness, great sin, especially immoral sin. And if you're wondering what's happening to our country right now, it's laid out for you in Romans 1 in the clearest detail. It has nothing to do with social issues. It has nothing to do with political issues. It has everything to do with theological issues because when you refuse to give God glory for who He is, He will let you go in your sinful nature and you will come apart at the seams. You will wind up being fools. And we're already there. Paul will say in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You know who we worship in America? Man. We worship ourselves, the creature, rather than worshiping the creator. And God, in effect, says, I, I'll let you do that. And you wind up being fools. But the gospel's no different. If you reject the Son of God after hearing the truth of the gospel, you do realize you've cut off God's only means in which He provides forgiveness for your sins. If you deny the Son the glory in the gospel, there is no longer any forgiveness. There's no longer any sacrifice that can be made for your sins. The writer of Hebrews, whoever wrote this wonderful book, says in Hebrews 10... Anyone who set aside or willfully ignored the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of just two or three witnesses. He says, but listen, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? If you reject the glory of the Son in the gospel, the Bible says it is a terrifying expectation of judgment for you. So God has designed both of these in his word and he intends to get glory from both of these. And as a church of the living God, by the grace of God, we'll glorify God for what he has done through both creation and the gospel. But I also realize this this week, both of these wonderful truths are received by faith. Again, I'll take you back to Hebrews 11 where the writer says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Now, I know that's not at all what my daughter was taught at Ole Miss. That's not at all what I was taught at Auburn 30 years ago. But that's what God's Word says. And listen, faith is not foolishness. Faith is simply this. I trust in what God says in His Word. And you and I trust in people all the time. When we sit in a classroom, we trust our teacher when we go to work, we trust what our boss has said is the thing that we need to do. When we come to church, you're trusting what the man behind the pulpit says. That's faith, except we don't trust in any man. We trust in what God has said. And so the Bible says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were made by the word of the Lord. 
But it also says in Romans 5, we are justified by faith and we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand creation, we understand the gospel in the very same way, it's by faith. Do you trust in what God has said that He has accomplished through His Son as sufficient and necessary for you to go to heaven? That's faith. God has said, His Son has died on Calvary for my sins. And for me to turn from my sins and put my faith in who Jesus is and what He's done, then I have everlasting life. You see, everything God has done, we trust Him by faith. Now the last thing, and if I had a slide I would show you this, but both, again, both of these have been done in relationship to the Son. Let me just read this passage, and I gave you this passage last week. Colossians 1.16, the Bible says, For in Him, meaning Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and in the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. And what if I asked you to explain that? What if I asked you to explain how God worked all that out? Everything that God created, He created in the Son, through the Son, and for the Son. Well, I can't explain it to you. Perhaps you can explain it to me, but I did come to this understanding. If we understood creation rightly, we could clearly see how no part of creation can be understood apart from the Son. If we understood creation from a biblical perspective, we couldn't understand it apart from understanding the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I tell you this is because the gospel is no different. You cannot understand any part, parcel, or molecule of this gospel without understanding it in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in Romans 1 and verse 3, Paul says about this gospel that it concerns the Son. No part of it does not concern any other thing than the Son. He is the fullness. He is the essence of the gospel. Now, you've got your Bibles, and I, I don't have slides. So run with me real quickly to John chapter 3, verse 35. And I want to answer this question. Why has the Father done everything in relationship to the Son? Why has God done everything in the sphere of the Son? John chapter 3, go with me to verse 35. Now look what the Lord Jesus says. The Father loves the Son. And what has He done? He has given all things into His hands. So, number one reason, foundational reason, why God has done everything that He has done, He has done in relationship to the Son, is for this simple reason. The Father loves the Son. Now, I know that you're familiar with this passage, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? But listen to this. For God so loved the son that he gave him the world and everything in it. You need to understand both of those. For God so loved the world that he gave it his only begotten son. But God so loved the son that he gave him the world and everything in it. 
So why has God done everything in relationship to the son? Because God loves the son and he has entrusted him with everything. Now, I told you your children won't be faithful with getting too much attention. But the son will always be faithful with all attention. And I want to show you that. So go with me now to the passage that you mark. First Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to show you what the son is going to do in response to all that the father has done. First Corinthians chapter 15. And let me begin in verse 20. And we'll come back to here more than once today because there's so much here that helps us understand Paul's gospel description in Romans 1. But watch with me. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also has come the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam, all die. So also all in Christ will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are in Christ at His coming. Notice verse 24. Then comes the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. Notice with me in verse 28. And when all things are subjected to Christ... Then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one God who subjected all things to Him, the Son, so that God may be all in all. That's the end of the story for all of us. Because when Christ has conquered, if you will, all things and all things are subjected to the Son, the Son willingly hands over the kingdom and all things that have been trusted to Him, He turns and hands it to the Father so that God may be all in all, so that God might be glorified in all things. Christ is the only one that could be trusted. And so the Father literally handed Him the keys to the kingdom. Everything that has been made was made in relationship to the Son. And everything is being put under the authority of the King and the kingdom of the Son. And in the end, the Son will submit Himself to the Father and God will be all in all and all glory will be given to the Father. You and I can't be trusted with that. Unfortunately, you and I can't be trusted with much of anything, can we? Because who do we want to glorify? You know what a struggle it is to stand up here week after week and not try to glorify myself? It's a difficult thing. We long to be recognized. We long to be praised. We long for our children to be recognized and praised. Guys, because of our sinful nature, we cannot be trusted with glory. We will steal it. And we will put it in our pocket and we will run with it. The son, no. He's never done that, nor will he. He can receive glory from all of creation. And then he'll turn and he'll give that glory back to the father. That God might be glorified in all. So this is why, as you're making your way back to Romans, this is why the gospel in all of its fullness concerns the son. Because the Son can be trusted with all things. 
But back in Romans 1, another reason that Paul begins his gospel with concerning the Son is because the Son is pre-existent. Meaning, Paul wants us to understand the glory and divinity of the Son in the gospel. You have to understand that before there was anything, there was Christ. We got this, we have this information for us in a number of different places. Colossians 1.17 simply says, Christ is before all things. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the phrase that we always use, the phrase that I like to use is, there never was a time when He was not. There never was a time when Christ was not because Christ is God. And it's difficult to, to define, it's difficult to understand, but we know from Scripture, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equally God. No one of them more grand or more important than the other, yet all three of them have the responsibilities and functions just like in a marriage. Who's more important, the husband or the wife? What a foolish question. They're equal in importance. To steal a word, they're equal in glory. But they have different responsibilities within the relationship. And the Trinity is very much the same way. Equal in importance. Equal in glory. All equally God. One God. Yet they have different responsibilities. And they, they're shown for us, some of those, in the gospel itself. But Paul wants you to understand... That the gospel begins with the Son because before there was anything, there was the Son. And the reason that I bring this up is that if you fail to glorify the Son, you fail to have faith in the Son. There are so many cults that want to do funny things with Jesus. And if you do funny things with Jesus outside of Scripture, you're not left with a saving Jesus. For instance, if you're back in Romans 1, that you'll notice with me, right after the three words concerning the Son, we have these three words, who was born. And so you have all of these cults out there, Jehovah's Witness being an example, that want to say there was a time when He was not. There was a time when Christ was not that He was created. Now, if you create the Son, He's no longer God. And if you steal glory from the Son, whom God has given all glory, do you think there would be salvation left for you to deny the Son of God His glory? So we have to be careful with the Son. There never was a time when He was not. He's fully God, but we're about to see there was a time when He was born, and He was born a man. He wasn't born into existence he was born into a form that was different than the form that he knew before. So the third reason and the final reason that Paul begins this, these statements with concerning the Son is because he wants to help you understand this phrase that he follows it with, which simply says, born in the flesh or who was born according to the flesh. Now let me help you with this word born. I love words, right? Get am I. And I don't even like the translation born. It literally means made or to become. So Christ was made or he became something. Now let me ask you this. If you become something, that implies what? You already were something. 
That's why we use the word Genemite. He already was something. He was God and he was in the form of God. But he was made. He was Genemite. He was born in the flesh. God became flesh. And I can't get over that. I mean, there's two parts of this gospel that I know that I'll never be able to understand or find the right words to tell you. And here's one of them. God became a man. How? Why? Why would God, who is beyond glory, lay aside those glorious robes and take on this right here? And I know why he did it, because he loves us. And I know another reason he did it, to give himself glory. But I don't comprehend it. And the greater thing than that, that I cannot comprehend nor explain, is that that man died for you. And I, I cannot comprehend that kind of love. But this first stage, let me get back. This first stage, who was born or to become, is what God did to the Son. He made him to be a man, and he was born according to the flesh. Now, we've been working on this word on Wednesday night. I hope most of you realize what's going on here. There's usually two contexts that Paul uses in regard to the flesh, and the first one's sinful. And we say it jokingly, and I'm trying to encourage myself, and let me encourage you as well. Let's stop using this jokingly, because we like to say, I got in the flesh. It's not something to brag about. And I said some things, I did some things. Let me tell you, I just got in the flesh this weekend. I believe that you did, but don't brag about it or make fun of it. It's not a godly thing. The other way that flesh is used is this right here. It's our humanness as well. Our, our humanness. And this is how God the Father made the Son. Not in that sinful flesh, rather, but in this body. God had feet, and God had legs, and God had arms, and God walked this planet for a season of time. God made the Son in the flesh. In fact, the writer of Hebrews simply says this in Hebrews chapter 2. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Meaning, God was exactly like you in every way. Again, I just don't have the words for that. That is beyond my imagination, especially when I realize what we did to God when he was in the flesh. See, that makes our rebellion, our, our, our sin all the more vile. We nailed God to a cross. And we mocked him the whole way. And we spilled his lifeblood on the ground and we stuck him in a hole in the ground. That's what we did to God while he was in the flesh. Paul writes this in Philippians 2 verse 7. That Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made. There's your word, genomai again. He was being made in the likeness of man. So here we've already constructed our first word of our four words. Look at the end of verse four again. Jesus. Paul says, I'm done with that word. This is how we knew him in the flesh. He was Jesus. Now Paul begins to work on the second part of the word, but we're still in verse three. Notice with me, he was born of a descendant of David. 
Now, I think most of you know this. This is according to the promise. Israel was promised that there would be a king that would come from the line of David. And that was significant because David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And so they held on to this promise. Actually, the promise was given to David himself in 2 Samuel verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, where the Lord told David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And then notice this. Listen to this. I will establish his kingdom. He will build my house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately, your ears should perk up because men don't live forever. And God had promised a man, David, that there's going to be somebody come from your line and he will sit on that eternal throne forever. And so they should have understood that the one who would come from the line of David is going to be of God and not of man. And so when God designed his gospel, he was careful not only to allow Jesus Christ to be born in the flesh, but to be born in the lineage or the line of David in order that he might be a what? A king. And there's your second word. Because that's exactly what Christ means. It's not Jesus' last name, told the release time kids, just a couple of weeks ago. It means Messiah. It means Savior. It means deliverer. And who was the savior and deliverer of their people in these days? The king. It was the king who marched out on the battlefield. It was the king who led the armies. It was the king who was responsible to deliver his people from their enemies. And look what our great king has done for us. He is the one who has led his armies to defeat our enemies and save us from sin and death. He is a faithful king. And so God was careful that when when Jesus Christ was born, not only to make him in the flesh in order to be a sacrifice for us, but to make him in the line of David in order that he might be a king. He was born. And might I add, perfectly. He checked every box He filled every necessity for us that he might save us from our sins. Now, let me look on work on this last word. But if you'll notice with me, verse four, and this is a different or more, not different. It is different, but it's more difficult. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me work on this word declared for just a second. I don't like this translation, but. King James, ESV, NAS, all use the word declared. It's the word horizo. If you're taking notes, H-O-R-I-Z-O, horizo. It's used a number of times in the New Testament. Three times it's used as the word determined. So let me read that for you in that context. Who was determined the Son of God with power. Twice it's translated as the word appointed. That works well. Who was appointed the son of God with power. And one time it's translated by the writer of Hebrews using a sand mountain phrase where it's translated the word fixes. This is what it says in in Hebrews 4, 7. God again fixes a certain day saying today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart. So horizo sometimes is the word translated fixes. So let me read that to you with that content or that word. Who was fixed the son of God 
with power. Now you're beginning to see what God has done. He was born and he was fixed. He was born and he was appointed. Who was he appointed as? The son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And you see where I'm going to go with this already, right? But let me give you the verb tense for those of you interested in that. It helps my soul. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it's in the perfect tense, except here. And it's used in the perfect tense every time because when God fixes something, it's done. You can't change it. But Paul writes it here in the aorist tense. We don't have aorist in the English because aorist tense puts emphasis on the action. It has no respect to time. In other words, all that Paul wants you to see in the word that he chose is that God has made this certain. He has appointed him son of God with power. That's all I want you to see. And so we understand that in this second stage of meeting Jesus Christ, our Lord, the second part of who he became, he has been appointed the son of God with power by what the father has done. Now, what does it mean with power? Keep your pen there in Romans and go to that other book that I told you to go to Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two. Now, I want you to hang on to every part of this so you'll understand how I'm going to conclude this. But we've only talked about two things, and that's all we're going to talk about is two things, who is born and who is declared. But I want you to see this phrase, son of God with power, and what that refers to. We've been to Psalms 2 before. Hopefully you're familiar with it. I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's absolutely wonderful. It's all connected. Beginning in verse 1, notice the question, why are the nations in an uproar? And why have the peoples devised such a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they take their stand. And the rulers of the earth take counsel together. They meet together. Why? Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Oh, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords for us. In other words, let us be our own God. Verse 4, notice God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he speaks. He speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. Notice verse 6. As for me, the father says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then look what he says to the son. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, meaning into the flesh. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall rule them or break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware or clay pots. And then he goes back to the kings. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment or listen up. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, do homage. The NIV says, kiss the son. Do homage to the son that he, not, he might not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Oh, how blessed are all who take refuge in this king that God has installed. 
That's pretty easy for us to understand who he's talking about, right? He's talking about his son. And so when we go back to Romans 1 and we see this phrase, he was born, right? A descendant of David according to the flesh, but who was declared the son of God in power. He has been declared over all of creation as king and Lord over all. Now we reach our third word. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, what has God done exactly that has made this known to all of creation? Now, again, I apologize. I've got to make you turn. Go with me to Ephesians. Go past Romans to the right. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And watch this unfold before our eyes. This is how God has declared him king. Ephesians chapter 1. Notice with me in verse 18. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. Watch what he says here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of of his power toward us who believe. Now watch. These things are in accordance with the working of the strength of God's might, which he brought about in Christ when he what? Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and yes, all modifies all four words. And he seated him far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet. What did God do when he declared him to be the son of God in power? He raised him from the dead. Now, if you say, wait a minute, other people were raised from the dead. No. They weren't resurrected, which is what he will go on to say. And there's a huge difference. Because if you think about the three people that we have in the text that talked about Jesus raising from the dead, you have the young girl who was 12. You have the widow's son as she was walking along the road about to bury him. And then you have Lazarus. And they were raised from the dead only to die again. Jesus was raised from the dead, resurrected, never to die again. And there's yet to be a man raised but one, you see. And so when God raised him, he raised him son of God in power and he seated him at his right hand and declared him to be king and Lord over all. Oh, we have much to do with our king. You cannot, you must not forget that you have a king. I know that you're Americans and we don't think that way. We think about our freedoms and our choices and our rights and our privileges that we'll die for. But you have a king, which means you don't have privileges, you don't have rights, and you don't have freedoms unless, of course, the king has granted them to you. And you can 
pitch a fit and fight every war and die all you want. It will not change the reality of what God has done when he set his son down at his right hand and put a crown on his head and said every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the privilege that you and I have today is we can do that now. We can get on our knees every morning and lift our hands and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And may he be Lord of my life today. See, that's the privilege of the church. We do it willingly, but the curse of the world, they refuse to do it willingly. And so one day, one day their knees will be crushed beneath them and they'll fall on their face and their mouths will be open for them and they will sing his praises. However unwilling they may be, but they will sing his praises anyway because God has crowned his son king. And he has made it known because he has raised him from the dead. He is the resurrected one. Now to help you understand this further, run with me back to the left and stop off at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 one more time and you'll see yourself. And then we'll catch this last phrase and we'll be finished this morning. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look with me at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice with me the first fruits of those who were asleep. He was the first. For since by a man came death, meaning Adam... By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, meaning Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There's our hope. But each of us in his own order. Again, Christ is the first. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And there's the period of time that you and I are in now. We're still waiting on his coming because at his coming, you and I will be resurrected and will be fit for heaven. This physical earthly body will be laid down and we will be given a body of glory that's fit for eternity. But Jesus Christ was the first. Paul says this in Romans 6 and verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a promise. And it comes to us beforehand. We're going to be fit for glory because our king has already been fit for glory. Now I've got one more phrase. Don't turn back because I want you to stay in 1 Corinthians 15. But let me go back and read it to you. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And then we've got this phrase, according to the spirit of holiness. This is the most difficult phrase of all of these things. Most people, when they see the spirit, they immediately want to jump to the Trinity because, oh, if we've got the spirit here, then we've got God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And I glory in the Trinity as much as any man, but that's not what he's doing here. Another suggestion is this. That it is the Spirit, capital S, yes, because now that the Son has been raised, guess what gift He gives us when we're born again? It is the Spirit of God. But again, that's not what He's doing here, because if you remember, He was born 
according to the flesh. And so this statement sits in contrast to that statement. He has been raised, if you will. He has been declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Born according to the flesh, declared according to the spirit of holiness. What does this mean? Well, it's very encouraging for us. Look in verse 42 if you're in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. I'll tell you what. Let's start back in verse 39. It gives us a little more context. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of birds, another of fish. Verse 40. There also is heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's our word again. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, or Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Moreover, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. He is earthy. The second man is from heaven, and I would add he is heavenly. As is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, of the one who has gone before us, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was declared... The Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness. He's been raised and he is no longer in the flesh. He's been raised in power. In resurrected power and he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. He is according to the spirit of holiness. Still God. Still man. That's why we call him the God man. He is our mediator who sits between God and us, reconciling us, making peace for us, right? But he has been raised in great power. He is according to the spirit of holiness and he is seated at the right hand of the father. Again, I take you back. Go back with me to Romans one. Now, God has done all that he has done in this gospel to magnify this son of his and to make it known in the heavens and the earth that he is Lord. That's why Paul writes the most, uh, for me, I guess, words in the New Testament. He writes in Philippians 2, 9, for this reason also, God highly exalted the son And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so Paul defines the gospel for us by beginning with the son and by ending the son. But he builds out the name that is above every name. And so verse four ends with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isn't it silly what we say? Make him Lord of your life. <laughs> you didn't do that. God has made him Lord. And if you want to glorify the son, you'll fall on your knees and you will turn from your sins and you'll put your trust in him. Because God the Father has entrusted the Son with all things. And it's high time you learn to trust Him as well with your life. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. You cannot deny that. You cannot argue with that. The only thing that you can do is worship him for that. And I encourage you with every ounce of my being, worship the son. He is worthy. Let's pray.